0: Preston in the Afternoon is a co-production of Ave Maria Radio and EWTN Radio and carried across the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network.
1: From the studios of Ave Maria Radio in Ann Arbor, Michigan, Al Cresta is ready for Conversations of Consequence. This is Cresta in the Afternoon.
2: Good afternoon, I'm Al Cresta. Thanks for being with me today. We're going to pick up on uh, really the second half of something we started two weeks ago. And Last week, of course, I was out of commission because of a terrible chest cold that also took my voice away. But uh, we're going to pick up on the second half of the big stories of 2023. And we're going to start out talking about human rights and religion. Dan Philpot, professor of political science at Notre Dame, will point out last year, big event, 75th anniversary of the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. And again, there was a large gathering over at Princeton, and the uh, conversation's worth talking about. So I want Dan to just fill us in on the event. I got a letter, an email last week, and while I was kind of out of commission, I couldn't speak, but I could write. But the letter asked, what as a Catholic should be our level of concern, if any, with the religion of the president? This is a general question, but it was brought to my listener's mind because Vivek Ramaswamy is a Hindu. And I know Ramaswamy now dropped out of the race, but this was before uh, the Iowa caucus and it says look he appears to be an intelligent man he's hindu but he's got some interesting ideas uh, which seem to agree with some christian values in contrast president biden claims the catholic faith but his policies don't you know always appear to match that claim and my listener asked look how do we manage the trade-offs between a candidate's policy lining up with our catholic morals and faith and the actual reason behind the policies or religion of that candidate. Great question. I'm going to share my thoughts on this uh, coming up on the second segment uh, of this hour. We're also going to have Stacey Trusenkos with us, taking a look at the biggest science stories of 2023. Uh, Michael O'Neill joins us uh, talking about the world of saints in 2023. We'll look at the top ten biblical archaeology discoveries of 2023 with Garden Govier, editor of the Biblical Archaeology magazine, Artifacts. And then Michael New joins us, uh, looking at an important year for the pro-life movement. But first, today's headlines. Thanks,
0: Al. Good afternoon, everyone. This is your Ave Maria Radio News. For Tuesday, January 16th, it's the Feast of St. Joseph Vaz. Today's news is brought to you by Visiting Angels, providing loving care and assistance for seniors in need at visitingangels.com. Two Republican presidential hopefuls have ended their campaigns. Former Arkansas Governor Asa Hutchinson announcing his decision this morning after receiving less than 200 votes in yesterday's Iowa caucuses. Last night, businessman Vivek Ramaswamy dropped out as well after coming in fourth. Ramaswamy has endorsed former President Trump, who dominated the caucus. Representatives for Hutchinson say he's not endorsing anyone at this time. House Republican leaders are expected to issue a new subpoena for Hunter Biden to testify behind closed doors. It's a part of their impeachment investigation into President Joe Biden. Hunter Biden's legal team has signaled their client's willingness to comply after he unexpectedly showed up at his own contempt hearing. A Boston federal judge is blocking a planned merger of JetBlue and Spirit Airlines.
3: The DOJ sued last March to stop New York City-based JetBlue's proposed $3.8 billion purchase of Spirit, headquartered in Florida. The merger would create the U.S.'s fifth-largest airline, and it's the first time in over two decades the federal government has tried to block an airline merger. U.S. Attorney General Merrick Garland argued the merger would lead to higher fares and fewer choices for travelers, with JetBlue maintaining it would help them compete with larger carriers like Delta and United and make fares cheaper. Liz Warner, NBC News Radio, New York.
0: Israel is ending its phase of operations in northern Gaza. That, according to Israeli defense minister, who urged his government to come to an agreement on a plan for the Gaza Strip after the war is over. This comes as Iran fired missiles at what it says were Israeli spy headquarters in northern Iraq. Meanwhile, three major United Nations agencies are warning Gaza needs more aid or its population will face disease and famine. From your Avi Maria Radio.net news desk, I'm Steve Clark.
2: Good afternoon, I'm Al Cresta. We've been looking over uh, 2023, and there was one event uh, last year that was really worth taking note of. It was uh, December 14th, 2023, and it was a remarkable meeting of religious leaders from around the world Uh, at Princeton University to commemorate the 75th anniversary of the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. And one of those in attendance was Dr. Daniel Philpop, professor of political science at the University of Notre Dame, author of Religious Freedom in Islam, The Fate of a Universal Human Right in the Muslim World Today. Dan's uh, research focuses on religion and global politics, emphasizing reconciliation and religious freedom He's uh, also organized a symposium of theologians, therapists, church leaders, lawyers, and survivors of abuse to discuss the Church's ongoing response to the crisis, and I was privileged to be part of that uh, symposium. You can follow his work at arcoftheuniverse.info. Dan, good to have you here. Thanks. Great to be with you once again, Al. So talk to me about this conference.
4: Well, it, it was a remarkable event. Um, it was celebrating the 75th anniversary of the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. And that was in 1948. It was really the Magna Carta of the human rights movement. Right after World War II, um, a number of leading um, kind of diplomats from around the world gathered to ask, are there certain human rights which every human person is entitled to, which every government should be asked to embody. And a remarkable consensus was formed out of, in order to bring about this Universal Declaration of Human Rights. One of the remarkable things about it, though, was the number of religious voices and religious leaders. Um, It brought together a consensus of Catholic, Protestant, Muslim, Confucian, Hindu, um, and that was essential for it to achieve the kind of global consensus around it. Well, fast forward to last uh, last month, and the effort was to have a kind of declaration by world religious leaders once again coming around endorsing human rights with the idea that they might remain prominent and globally um, of high stature in the next 75 years. And so there was a, a day-long conference and a, and a, a
2: wonderful declaration. Uh, you know, the thing, we're living in Uh, in many ways a different world today, Uh, religion now is considered an enemy of human rights.
4: Yeah, that is very common in um, secular culture. Religion is considered particular, it is considered emotional, irrational, superstitious, uh, as opposed to human rights, which are universal, rational, um, something for everyone. But in fact, it is religious uh, traditions which uphold the idea of there being an objective morality, a natural law yep. that we call it in the Catholic tradition. C.S. Lewis called it, called it the, Tao the Tao in his yeah. wonderful book, The Abolition of Man. And it, it tends to be uni- religions which says that there is a God or a universal higher being in which um, you know a kind of universal morality re- resides or subsists. And actually forms the basis for the kind of universal obligations and human dignity, some of the basic ingredients for human rights
2: yeah yeah this it this was remarkable i when when the universal declaration was put together, there was surprising unanimity about the rights uh, that people could uh, sign on for, um even though they had m- Disagreements about how to justify those rights.
4: Yes, so that, that's right. Yes, the, um, the famous Catholic natural law philosopher who was involved in the the process as an intellectual, Jacques Maritain, mm-hmm. uh, made a famous quip where he said, "We agree on the rights, but but just don't ask us why." <laughs> In other words, a number of intellectuals from a number of different traditions came together and agreed on this common declaration of human rights, yet did so from different religious and yeah. philosophical positions. Yeah. And the important thing was that they would agree to the, the document, to this, um, to this agreement, um, rather than that we would have to work out one common philosophical justification. Right. And right. I think he had an important insight. Yet at the same time, I would argue that, whereas that's true, nevertheless, certain ingredients are nevertheless necessary for human rights. Mm-hmm. I would say one of them is natural law, yes. the idea that there is a commonly shared morality. Um, that I would say human dignity, the idea that the human being has uh, irreducible precious worth and value. And without those things, I think it's, it's hard to get human rights.
2: Yeah. Did you get a chance to uh, make a presentation at this conference on December 14th?
4: Well, I did. A number of people around the table made uh, short presentations, and I was looking at the question of um, whether religions can change in order to become, um, you know, supporters of, of universal human oh. rights. And yeah. I looked at the, the the Catholic case of religious freedom, whereas the Catholic Church came to espouse um, the human right of religious freedom in Dignitatis Humanae, mm-hmm. uh, one of the documents of the Second Vatican Council, and um, in a sense changed, but changed in a way that I think um, evolved out of what the Church has always believed and taught. Um, it uh, purified and deepened and... Um, kind of reaffirmed some the uh, long standing teachings teachings that are embedded in revelation but yes. clarified that they mean um uh, the right of uh, religious freedom for every human being. Yes. And so uh I kind of um had uh Islam in mind because um I think that uh, yeah we might hope for a similar evolution in Islam yes. towards uh you know, a, a strong and wide affirmation of religious freedom, of equal citizenship, and um, which uh, would be important for Islam to be fully a part of the human rights consensus.
2: Yeah, and in the Catholic experience, we, we go back to the data of the New Testament, and then we go back to the first few hundred years of our existence, where we were a persecuted minority, implicitly, you know, uh, calling for religious liberty. <laughs> <laughs> yes. You know, and then we had people, that's right. we had teachers like Lactantius and others yes. who made explicit, I think Tertullian also made explicit yes, reference right. to religious yes. liberty. Um, and we had, to, again, go back and remind our own tradition uh, to recover uh, that emphasis. What's your, yes. when you look at the uh, Muslim world today, uh, where do you see the best uh Options for this evolution, you might say?
4: Well, at, and, in fact, at our conference, at this day long seminar, we had one of the most remarkable Muslim um, influences for human rights. Um, uh, it goes by the name of uh, Pak Yahya, or a. Uh, Yaya yeah, yeah, Cholil Stakuf, who is the general secretary of an organization in Indonesia mm-hmm. called the Nalatul Ulama. Most listeners probably haven't heard of it. You're much more likely to have heard of something like the Muslim Brotherhood or something. Right. But in fact, Nadlatul Ulama of Indonesia is the largest... Muslim organization of any kind in the world. Some 90 million people belong to it. And it's not exactly a political party, but it's a broad social movement, and it does espouse certain values and commitments. And one of these is tolerance for people of all religions. It's actually a strong proponent of religious freedom for everyone. And, um, to have such a large organization the, the world's largest muslim organization espouse this is something that could have a great influence it's interesting and part of the mission of the organizers of the conference is to lift up uh Yahya's voice lift up nanda tula lama and let this be an influence on, on the whole world
2: now this uh, I've, I've often heard that the indonesia is one of the best places to look to see what might be the next step for uh, Islam when it comes to this question of uh, human rights and religious uh, freedom? Uh, to, is it, is it the, the fact that it's coming from Indonesia makes me wonder if there's some big difference between uh, Indonesia and the Muslim nations of the Middle East, which are often Arab? Yes. Yeah. Yes.
4: And it it's often said that it is the Middle Eastern um, nations, um, Saudi Arabia, and maybe Iran as the leader of the Shiites, mm-hmm. who are basically calling the shots for Islam. Um, this is magisterial Islam, yeah. where Saudi Arabia is where you have Mecca, and um, it's sort of seen as the center where the word goes out. Well, in fact, um, Indonesia is very important. It is the world's largest um, Muslim country, the world's largest Muslim democracy, and you know, Islam doesn't have a pope. And, you know, there's no reason why um, Indonesia shouldn't speak um, just as loudly. And if the world would be willing to hear that, you know, allow them to take leadership rather than just always um, simply deferring to um, Saudi Arabia, and uh, then I think this could uh, have a remarkable influence.
2: Uh, let me ask about China. Uh, there we have a situation, again, huge nation, uh, highly developed uh, political uh, organization there, the Communist Party, uh, that seems to regard the Western emphasis on human rights as, you know, not in keeping with their own Chinese tradition. Uh, did anybody speak to that? Well,
4: um, uh, only a little bit. Um... And uh, China is certainly one of the uh, worrying places for um, uh, international uh, human rights. And um, in the last 10 years, it has really – things have really gotten worse on the religious freedom front, both with with respect to Uyghur Muslims and with respect to Christians. Um, And so it is one of the worrying places. There, though, I think – As much a problem for human rights as, you know, their traditional culture is the communist government, which it still is communist. Right. It may be that it has adopted different forms of capitalism and so on, but communist ideology still rules the, the roost. And I think one of the reasons why it finds religion threatening is because it threatens the legitimacy structure of the regime. And, um, So I think it is a much more brutal uh, kind of effort for communist leaders to hold power that really lies behind um, the, uh, you know, the increasingly brutal uh, human rights violations. Yeah,
2: yeah. Uh, After a conference like this, uh, are are there any follow-up events or uh, attempts to influence
4: Yes. Well, first of all, there was a communique that just came out of the common, uh, the religious leaders in the conference uh, put out a statement of religious support for human rights, the uh, R-20 Princeton Declaration. And uh, that is very important. Also, the Center for Shared Civilizational Values, who organized the events, will be continuing to get the word out on religion and human rights.
2: Very good. Dan, thanks so much for joining me today. Thank uh,
4: you, Al. Always wonderful. Happy New Year.
2: Happy New Year. Again, Dan Philpott, uh, again, Professor of Political Science at the University of Notre Dame. We'll have that information in the Crest to Guest Archive.
5: Father
6: Benedict Rochelle. Brothers and sisters, we got to tell the truth in this country. For heaven's sakes, I wouldn't want to go to a synagogue and find that they were having a Muslim service. I wouldn't want to go to a mosque and run into a Baptist service. I don't want to go to a, a Baptist church and find out that they're having Mass. We've got to be honest to ourselves. We've got to be what we are. I'd rather a good old-fashioned, honest agnostic than a phony Christian any day of the week. There are reluctant agnostics. There are atheists who are searching for God, and they may find Him. But somebody who says they're doing something in the name of God and the name of Christ,
0: and God and Christ have nothing to do with it, is violating
6: this commandment. I am the Lord your God. You shall
7: not take my name in vain. The people you know and trust are on EWTN. What is the great mystery of the Christian faith? It is, of course, the resurrection of Jesus Christ, even though the resurrection is an historical fact professed by the apostles and signified by the empty tomb. No one knows the exact hour Jesus emerged from the tomb. There were no eyewitnesses to describe the actual moment, only the result, the live appearances of Jesus to his disciples. It is an event that transcends and surpasses history, the Catholic Catechism tells us. The three persons of the Trinity, using their individual characteristics, acted as one in bringing about the resurrection. God the Father raised up the Son. God the Holy Spirit gave life to Jesus' dead humanity and called it to the glorious state of lordship. The Son affects his own resurrection by virtue of his divine power. He predicted the Passion and declared that he had the power to lay down his life and take it up again. This is Peggy Stanton, and this has been the Order of Malta's Minute with the Catechism.
8: By providing quality programming faithful to the teachings of the Catholic Church, EWTN television is TV that viewers can trust. Whether it's films, documentaries, news coverage, lively discussion shows, or kids' programs, we highlight the truth that is the eternal Word. For a complete schedule of EWTN television programs, visit EWTN.com and click TV. EWTN is the global Catholic network. Accidents are the leading cause of life-threatening injuries, but few Americans are prepared. My Life Angels creates your pro-life healthcare durable power of attorney, accessible anytime on smartphones, and alerts loved ones if you enter a hospital ER, empowering them to protect you. You can protect yourself and your family. Use code AVE at checkout today and My Life Angels will donate 35% of your initial membership to Ave Maria Radio. More information at mylifeangels.com.
9: Cresta in the afternoon is underwritten by the following nonprofit organization. Real Estate for Life. Buying or selling your home or business property? Real Estate for Life can connect you with one of 1,400 pro-life real estate agents around the world. When Real Estate for Life receives a referral fee, they donate 70% to Ave Maria Radio and Human Life International. More information at realestateforlife.org or 877 Life US1. That's realestateforlife.org.
0: We are the pro life generation, passionate about building the culture of life in our healthcare and in our nation. But not all healthcare options are equally pro life, and some provide morally objectionable procedures. CMF Curo is different. CMF Curo is a pro-life Catholic healthcare ministry, providing a pathway for its members to build the culture of life in their healthcare choices, not destroy it. Learn more about CMF Curo at MyCatholicHealthCare.com. That's (laughs) MyCatholicHealthCare.com.
2: Good afternoon. I'm Al Cresta. Last week, a listener emailed me about, uh, I think, an important question. I was at home with a chest cold, and so I had a chance to respond at some length to what was an excellent question. Let me just give it to you quickly. He he asked, what as a Catholic should be our level of concern, if any, with the religion of the president? Uh, Vivek Ramaswamy, who's now dropped out of the race. Vivek Ramaswamy is a Hindu but appears to be an intelligent man and has some interesting ideas which seem to agree with Christian values, while President Biden claims the Catholic faith, but his policies don't, you know, match up oftentimes with that claim. How do we manage the trade-offs between a candidate's policy and his religion? It's an excellent question. It's been a question throughout Western political history. And in brief, let me make it clear. We should be more concerned about a president's virtue than his religion. Why? Well, because in fallen human beings, the link between belief and behavior is weak. That's why I say character counts more than doctrine. In this case, a person may believe high-minded truths but fail to act on them. We all know agnostics who show greater kindness and justice than some Christians we know. You might say, how can this be when Christians, by virtue of their baptism, have access to all that Christ has accomplished and offers to them? It's really simple. Most Christians don't appropriate all that's available to them. They have money in the bank, and they don't draw on it. Similarly, the Catholic Church has a full deck of cards, but many Catholics only use half the deck. Non-Catholics may have only a few of the cards, those derived from natural law and natural theology, but they use them more effectively than Catholics use the supernatural cards at their disposal. So, in short, a good Hindu may be a better president than a bad Catholic. A good Buddhist, a good Mormon, a good Southern Baptist— could be a better president than a bad Catholic. And the reason for this is that a good Hindu may better practice the general principles of morality that are taught in all the world's great religions. Now, let me clear up a misunderstanding. The world's great religions are not one. The doctrinal differences are great. But there is a surprising unanimity about morality and virtue, and this shouldn't surprise us. The Christian theologian, who's always taught, That apart from Scripture, or apart from the history of Israel, or apart from the Incarnation, that there is a general revelation or natural theology. This means that God has imprinted a general morality on the soul of those who are his image bearers. C.S. Lewis, in his Abolition of Man, refers to this universal moral law as the Tao. Quote, the Chinese also speak of a great thing called the Tao. It is nature, it is the way, it is the road. It's also the way which every man should tread. End quote. Confucius in his Analects, says, for instance, In ritual it is harmony with nature that is prized. The Hebrews similarly praise the law as true. Saint Paul speaks of a law written on our hearts in Romans two. For Christians this law, this path, this way, this word, became incarnate, took on human nature in Christ Jesus. So what followers of these world religions have in shadow, we have in light. And it depends on how well we use the light that is available to us. A good Hindu may be a far better ruler than a bad Catholic because he's more attentive to the Tao, or to natural theology, or general revelation, or natural law. Let me go a little deeper with this. Historically, political philosophers in the classical tradition— including the Catholic tradition, have said that statecraft has a bearing on soulcraft. The laws of the society will influence, for good or ill, its members' efforts to cultivate virtue. So we should desire leaders, rulers, elected officials who understand this and practice virtue themselves. By being attentive to the moral law given us in creation and trying to practice it themselves, leaders will help create laws in societies more conducive to cultivating virtue among its citizens. You know, it amazes me that people have forgotten that the founding fathers of America, to a man, believed that freedom could only be maintained by our virtuous citizenry. You've heard the motto, America is great because America is good. If America ever stops being good, it will stop being great. Well, this maxim is attributed to Alexis de Tocqueville, the French aristocrat who toured America in 1831 and 32 and put his observations in a book called Democracy in America. But no one's been able to actually locate this quote. Uh, Still, it's been quoted by former President Clinton, former Speaker of the House Gingrich, and dozens of uh, American politicians, including those who regularly engage in adultery and embezzlement. The connection, though, between moral law and political success was accepted by all the founding fathers of America, including the father of our nation, George Washington, and he makes it explicit in his farewell address, quote, Of all the dispositions and habits which lead to political prosperity, religion and morality are indispensable supports. This wasn't just pious window dressing or popular sentimentality for the masses. He truly believed that we sabotage our political future if we undermine religion and morality. Quote, in vain would that man claim the tribute of patriotism who should labor to subvert these great pillars of human happiness, these firmest props of the duties of men and citizens. Quote. He continues pointing out that the connections between religion, morality, and political happiness are so great and so many that no book could contain all their connections. And then he asks a blunt rhetorical question. Let it simply be asked, where is the security for property, reputation, for life, if the sense of religious obligation desert the oaths which are the instruments of investigation in our courts of justice? End quote. The answer we would have no security. Without an appeal to God, we couldn't count on human beings to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, so help me God. This was a concern in Washington's day. Freethinkers, rationalists, atheists, the skeptics of religion, all claiming superior education and knowledge, had increased their following and insisted that virtue didn't depend on religion. Washington acknowledged this might be true for the elite few, but would never work for a nation. Quote, "...and let us caution and indulge the supposition that morality can be maintained without religion." Whatever may be conceded to the influence of refined education on minds of peculiar structure, reason, and experience, both forbid us to expect that national morality can prevail in exclusion of religious principle. So basically, eh, maybe the properly educated can perform virtue apart from religion, but this is a dangerous path upon which to lead a nation. Washington wasn't inventing these ideas. You find them in Plato, and Aristotle, and Augustine, and Aquinas. And through most of Western political history, political power was made legitimate by the ruler practicing virtue. To do well, a ruler must do good. The right to be obeyed flowed from moral righteousness. Now, most historians of political thought believe that Machiavelli in The Prince, 1532, Challenge this traditionalistic, moralistic view of political authority. For Machiavelli, authority wasn't drawn from goodness, but from power. Whoever gets power has the right to command. And this has led to the belief that might makes right. Ironically, though, Machiavelli said that the prince must appear to be a man of virtue. The public expects it. Appearances were important. But acquisition of power was more important If a ruler needed to go to Mass to rule France, as Napoleon was credited as saying, then a smart ruler will go to Mass. Today, people can still recognize the personal virtue of a Mitt Romney, a Mormon, or George H.W. Bush, an Episcopalian. But the press have grown suspicious of those who appear traditionally virtuous. We saw this when they uh, critiqued uh, Mike Pence and Rick Santorum. And in our history, we've seen the electorate forget the personal virtue of a man and deny him because of his religion. The best example is Al Smith, Democratic president, candidate for president in 1928. Smith was an Irish Catholic who, at age 14, dropped out of St. James Parochial School to help support his family, and he worked at the Fulton Fish Market for seven years. He was an altar boy, strongly influenced by the Catholic priests, never went to high school or college, claimed that he learned about people by studying them at the Fulton Fish Market. He rose to become governor of New York without getting stained by the Tammany Hall corruption in New York City. In 1928, a vicious campaign of anti-Catholic hatred was waged against him. A widely distributed periodical said, the real issue in this campaign is Protestant Americanism versus and Roman Romanism. Today, the press has not only grown suspicious of attacks on a person's religion, so, for instance, the press would have condemned attacks on Ramaswamy's Hinduism, but the press is also suspicious of those who strive to appear traditionally virtuous. And again, I say, we saw them knock, try to knock Mitt Romney down a peg because of his emphasis on family and personal morality. They did the same with Rick Santorum and Mike Pence. Today, Rather than religion and morality, the media scrutinize potential office holders according to the standards of diversity, equity, and inclusion DEI. They ask, how would they use power to help certain minorities, or to expand our inclusivity, or create equity for those who have been historically oppressed? Unfortunately, for the underprivileged or the outsider, that concern has been beaten into a rigid ideology. Barry Weiss, former ombudsman at the New York Times, resigned because they wouldn't let her do her job. And she describes how concern for diversity, equity, and inclusion have become a worldview, a rigid worldview. Quote, what I saw was a worldview that replaced basic ideas of good and evil with a new rubric. The powerless are good and the powerful are bad. It replaced lots of things. It replaced colorblindness with race obsession. It replaced ideas with identity. It replaced debate with denunciation. It replaced persuasion with public shaming. It replaced the rule of law with the fury of the mob. People were to be given authority in this new order, not in recognition of their gifts, hard work, accomplishments, or contributions to society, but in inverse proportion to the disadvantages their group had suffered, as defined by radical ideologues. Let me say, there's nothing wrong with asking DEI-related questions, they have political significance, but questions of traditional morality have become much less significant. It's easy to become disillusioned with this whole political exercise these days, Uh, but government of the people, by the people, and for the people is in fact in jeopardy. When Lincoln prayed that it would not perish from the earth, he knew, as well as any man, how fragile is the unity of our states. We rarely have perfect choices when it comes to political candidates, and many times we don't even have good choices. All are compromised in some way. But St. Augustine reminds us that regardless regardless of who's ruling, the Christian is subject to a ruler of unlimited virtue— And sovereignty. His kingdom is not of this world, but will at some undisclosed time rule this world? In the meantime, our political choices are made as acts of bearing witness to that coming kingdom. We don't bring it in, we bear witness to it. He'll bring it in. And when all is ended, our choices will be mercifully measured by the one ruler who actually deserves to be king. I'm Al Cresta.
10: proclaiming the faith changing lives. The year was 2009. Pope Benedict XVI awards EWTN Fondress Mother Angelica and Deacon Bill Steltemeyer the cross of honor for distinguished service to the Church. It is the highest honor that the Pope can bestow upon laity and religious. To learn more about Mother Angelica's life and the history of EWTN, visit EWTN.com slash Mother Angelica.
1: Support for this Ave Maria radio program comes in part by the non-for-profit St. Anthony Services. Are you shopping for mortgage products, Catholic investing, Catholic health, real estate, or estate planning? StAnthonyServices.org can help you find a Catholic professional for these needs. They regularly connect faithful citizens with faith-based professionals that share our Christian values. More information at StAnthonyServices.org or
11: 877-LIFE-US1.
0: Ave Maria School of Law is the Roman Catholic law school in the United States. Consistently ranked in the Princeton Review as one of the best and most conservative law schools, as well as pre-law's most devout law school. Ave Maria School of Law provides a traditional legal education while emphasizing how the law intersects with the Catholic intellectual tradition and natural law philosophy. Ave Maria School of Law, unabashedly Catholic, consistently excellent. For more information,
1: visit AveMariaLaw.edu. The Catechism defines evangelization as the proclamation of Christ and his gospel by word and the testimony of life, in fulfillment of Christ's command. But what does that look like in real life? It looks like the St. Paul Evangelization volunteers, out on the street, sharing the good news with people in a non-confrontational way, handing out free sacramentals, listening to them, praying for them, teaching them, planting seeds, and letting the Holy Spirit make them grow. Visit StreetEvangelization.com and learn more so you can get involved in real-life evangelization.
9: Christ is the Answer, with Father John Ricardo. I tell oftentimes an experience that I had at Divine Child when I was a young priest, one year ordained, first time I ever really saw the power of the Blessed Sacrament. And we simply exposed the Blessed Sacrament at the end of Mass one night. I encouraged people. I said, you know what, we've been in the habit of praying over people after Mass. I said, we're not going to do that this week. I'm just going to invite people to come on up and pray if they want to pray. And I put the Blessed Sacrament on the altar. I kneel down. As I kneel down, the church is in the sanctuary, the whole church. And as I'm looking at this and I'm looking at the people there and I'm looking at Jesus under the appearance of bread there, I saw the Lord standing on the altar. And he's just standing there looking out at all the people. And then at a certain point, he turned towards me and he just bowed. And he says, don't you see how easy this is? You don't have to do anything. You just have to put me out. You put me out, and I will work.
5: It's time for Family Man with Dr. Gregory Popchuk.
11: Too often we parents get so caught up in the day-to-day grind of family life, appointments, chores, emails, and so on, that we don't spend enough time on our most important job, spiritually parenting our kids. What is spiritual parenting? It's nothing more than capturing our kids' hearts and then doing what we can to bring their hearts to God. The liturgy of domestic church life provides the rituals and routines we need to be good spiritual parents, prioritizing family time, being extravagant in our affection and affirmation, serving one another generously and cheerfully, and practicing gentle discipleship discipline. Ultimately, spiritual parenting is about helping our kids recognize their inherent worth so that they, in turn, can love God and others wholeheartedly. To find out more about spiritual parenting, check out our books, Parenting Your Kids with Grace and Parenting Your Teens and Tweens with Grace, or visit catholichom.com. I'm Dr. Greg Pottschak, but you can call me Family Man. To discover more ways faith can enrich your life, visit catholiccounselors.com.
2: And hey, good afternoon, I'm Al Cresta. We continue our look back at the big stories of 2023, looking at the biggest science stories. And joining us right now is Stacy Trusankos, author, most recently, of Behold, It Is I, Scripture, Tradition, and Science, on the Real Presence of Christ in the Eucharist. She serves as Professor of Catholic Studies at Seton Hall, and you can follow her on Twitter, at Stacey Trisenkos, T-R-A-S-A-N-C-O-S, and also visit com. Stacy, good to have you back. Thanks.
12: Hi, Al. It's good to be here. So
2: was last year a good year for science?
12: I think at um, the rate science is exploding in our lifetimes, every year is a good year for (laughs) science. The work we have to do is to keep up with it ethically.
2: Yes, yes, very good point. Very good point. Well, give me some of the big stories last year. From science.
12: Okay, well, there are a number of stories that, that we compiled just sort of looking through um, what's on people's minds. Um, obviously, this was a big year for artificial intelligence. Yeah. And um, I know as a professor myself, it greatly impacted the way we think about how to hold students accountable and grade their essays. Yeah, um, yeah. And what seemed like was going to be a big plagiarism issue is actually also turning into um, a way to help students and professors access information mm. better. So, you know, we're going to figure it out. We're going to keep going. It's pushing professors, I think, to um, really – look at how they're asking students to respond to their course I, I and would, how they engage with students.
2: Yeah, I would think that with the new tools, um, that those who practice plagiarism are should be scared.
12: <laughs> exactly. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, because now we can tell if students have plagiarized much easier. We can tell... There are tools now in the learning management systems to tell us if students used AI to write an essay. Yeah. And what I really like is it pushed the professors to ask students to respond in more personal ways um, with what they think about things. So, you know, in a science course that won't work, but in theology courses it's very useful. Sure. um, Good will come of it. We just have to stay one step ahead.
3: Yeah. Yeah.
2: Okay. Uh, I know it was a big year for uh, blockbuster weight loss drugs.
12: Yes, the big uh, Ozempic uh, weight loss drug that everybody's talking about. This is, I think, this is something to keep your eye on as we go into 2024, 2025. Um, it, it seems all good so far, but you know there, that's until something bad comes right, from it. Right. Right. Diet pills have a bad rap because they traditionally are packed with amphetamines, diuretics, and they do damage to the body. But this one is a hormone that seems to just have the effect of reducing the food noise. It makes you less anxious to snack. And um, so the people that have taken it have had physiological improvements like less um, liver disease, um, type 2 diabetes, they've had um, less heart conditions, and they've also, of course, lost weight. So um, at, they did a trial in August with 529 people, and um, it was it was good results. So I guess we need to see where this goes in yeah. the coming years.
2: Yeah, yeah. Uh, th- this is still fairly new, though, is that right?
12: It's been around since the 1980s. Um, But they were using it for a treatment for diabetes uh, because it reduces the blood sugar in people. So um, this GLP-1 hormone reduces the blood sugar in people. And so they were using it for diabetes. It started um, becoming looked at as a diet drug just in the last couple of years. Yeah,
2: that's what I thought.
12: So yeah. it uh, it remains to be seen what impact it'll have. You know, it's still I think always going to be true. It's chem. Your body is. I'm a chemist. Your body is a chemistry machine. Yeah. And you yeah. you need to put in healthy ingredients, and you need to exercise and or do what you can, and and. Think about, you know, what they say, you are what you eat. So you, you, we're never going to get away from that. We're not going to be able to eat a bag of Cheetos every day <laughs> right. and still be healthy.
2: That's, no, that's very true. Uh,
12: let's, uh, let's jump
2: to uh, uh, go to the moon here. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Tell, what is, what is India over. doing?
12: That was was a big breakthrough and definitely a milestone that goes down in 2023. On August 23rd, um, India reported their Chandrayaan 3. It was their third lunar exploration, an unmanned spacecraft, so there were no people on it. It was the first to land in the south pole of the moon. So Mm -hmm. the moon has a south pole, and it's very um, ragged there. The terrain is very uneven. But it's also where they think they found ice as in water yeah. on the moon. Yeah. So they were able to do a soft landing, meaning they didn't crash. They slowed the lander speed down from like thirty eight hundred miles per hour to almost zero and landed softly. Um, which was amazing. The the second version of the Chandrahan crashed. So this one did not crash. It landed successfully and that they're collecting data to send back to the earth now. So that was a big win for India.
2: Now, do they end up sharing that information?
12: Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, science is very global these days. Does every country share everything uh of- almost certainly not, Mm -hmm. but um, the mark of good science isn't to keep it to yourself, it's to share it with the world and do something that changes the world, and that brings honor to your country. Mm So um, so science is a global enterprise.
2: Well, from going on our way to the moon, I understand (laughs) orcas are rhyming into ships off Europe's coast.
12: Yes, and I think down in South America too. The they so this brings up the question of animal intelligence, right? Yeah. Um, It seems like they're getting mad. It seems like a learned behavior. There was one mother whale, an orca, who um, a ship did something to one of her babies, and it was just a merchant ship off the coast, and. She realized, like, she could, I think the story goes, she realized she could protect by ramming into the ship, and they, so now there's this problem where the orcas ram into the ships, and they do so, it seems like, in an intelligent way. They know, they kind of gang up together, they work together and hit different parts of the ships, and they're sinking them. And um, the scientists are trying to figure out like, are they just mad? Are they all copying this one mad mother? Are they, do they have some other reason? Are they just mimicking? Uh, Nevertheless, it's a problem. And so they're, you know, the scientists are saying, well, we need to look at this objectively. But the ships that are getting sunk are, are obviously getting mad about that. So it's, uh, Going to be interesting to figure out what to do about it, and I guess just at a high level, not being a person on a ship myself and not really having anything invested in this, it does beg the question about animal intelligence. Yeah. What um, I mean, obviously, they don't have rational souls like humans do, but right. they still have brains that can learn things. And, and, and uh, orcas
2: are generally regarded as into- highly intelligent among- yeah. within the animal world. Yeah.
12: Yeah. Yeah. So, just don't get on the bad side of a, a mama orca.
2: <laughs> That's right. Yeah, I don't, I don't, I don't think they're instructing classes uh, uh, <laughs> no. for little orcas, but uh, certainly they they could be gent, you know, modeling behavior. Um, mm-hmm. And it, it's it's just interesting the, uh, how they would be able to um, correspond the threat of these ships, uh, you know, with um, their capacity to fight back. I I think that's pretty yeah. amazing. Uh,
12: and how may, how can we teach them not to? Like, is there some way that we can intervene? I yeah. think, you know, thinking of like how we raise toddlers, sometimes you can't reason with a toddler, and you have to think of ways to try to understand where they're coming from and divert their attention to something else.
2: Yeah. No, very good. Um, was 2023 the warmest year on record, really?
12: Um. So they say, but uh, I, I'm scared to get into any kind of climate change discussion. Um, uh, uh,
4: I,
6: I, I know I, what you
12: mean. I never quite know what to make of it. I actually teach a course at Seton Hall where we look at the church and science, and we do. We look at everything the Pontifical Academy of Sciences. Um, we look at different issues that they ha- actually have workshops and conventions on, and we study what they say. And uh, that's a big one that, you know, of course, that's something that Pope is very concerned about. Right. But um, it always, it's frustrating for students and frustrating for all of us, I think, because we all agree that we want to be good stewards of our planet. We're just not all in agreement on what should be done. Yeah. So I encourage my students to keep thinking about it. But, you know, my students, they, they, they're li- they've lived with climate change all their lives, you know, people who are... 18 to 30 years old, they've lived with climate change, and they are worried about it. I mean, I have students, for example, who will say things like they work at Starbucks, and they get very upset because you can't you can't give anything away that's waste at the end of the day. You're required to throw it away. Yes. You can't take it home. You can't give it to the poor because it'll damage the brand, and so they get upset about stuff like that, and I just tell them, take that passion and figure out how to solve this problem yeah. in your lifetime because... Yeah that's what's going to fall to you to have to do.
2: And it's also frustrating when uh, a scientific question, as important as that as climate change, ends up becoming so politicized, uh, and yes. those of us who are not expert in any way in the field uh, don't quite know how to make sense of the competing mm-hmm. claims.
12: Yeah, and that's another thing the Pontifical Academy of Sciences talks about is big data. There's actually a real ethical risk with anything with all of our computational technology now to collect large amounts of data because anybody can, twi- I mean, my husband's a statistician and I can tell you, if you know something about how to use the numbers, you you can make any story you want look true. Yeah, And it's very scary. And so with big data, there's data coming in all over the place. Most people aren't going to be able to look at all of it and figure out what the truth is. And so we're sort of left in this situation where we have to trust the experts and we don't know if we can so big data itself is um i don't know if it's a big breakthrough in science but it's one of the things that needs to stay on the radar to watch out for
2: yeah yeah very good uh you also uh pointed out that we now have the largest and most comprehensive cell map of the human lung uh tell me about that
12: the lung, because of COVID, and also the brain, um, the brain initiative is B-I-C-C-N, um, it's the Brain Initiative Cell Census Network, there's all these acronyms, but the lung was also one and the brain is one, and it's all part of this greater project called the the Human Cell Atlas, and with CRISPR tech, well, with um, single cell transcriptomics is the big general name. Single cell transcriptomics. They can now do genetic profiles of single cells. So you kind of you kind of shoot these single cells. You you know you get liver sample, brain sample, um, heart sample, whatever, and you work it up and you get it down to single cells, and then you shoot them through this analytical machine, and it tells you the nucleic acid sequence of the RNA or DNA in that cell. So they're able, that's amazing, we're able to to know all the sequence of the genetic material cell by cell. So what they're trying to do, and this is a global effort with hundreds of research teams, they're looking at different parts of the body at different types of cells. They now know there's like 61 different types of cells in the lung, and there's over 3,000 types of cells in the brain. and. Um, That's going to give us enormous power to be able to understand diseases better and and understand how the human brain works. But it comes with an ethical situation that I've been keeping my eye on for many years now, fetal tissue research. Mm -hmm. So you can't have a complete human cell atlas without the development period from conception to birth. Right. And um, this project requires a lot of um, fetal samples. So um, a lot of the means, information means death, we have. Yeah. Yes, it means abortion. It yeah. means samples from abortion and a, lots of them because they need lots of different over the timeline from zygote to fully formed baby. They need samples from all the organs in the body. Over that time, and so it used to be called the fetal cell atlas. Now it's called the human cell atlas because they're using adults as well.
7: Mm-hmm. But this
12: is an enormous project that relies on abortion. And um, you know, we're going to be at a que- we, we we are already there now. We're going to have to ask ourselves as Catholics, how much do we need to know about the human body if it requires this practice of using aborted babies?
2: It's a wonderful uh, question put before us, Stacy. Thank you, and. Uh,
11: That's
7: 844-398-9399. Catholic Connection with Teresa Tomio. I often have people ask me, aren't you scared when you talk about the issues such as abortion or uh, the, all the different ideologies, especially the gender ideology? I see. I'm scared of what I don't say if I'm not using this platform that God gave me wisely and well. If I'm not sharing information with people, if I'm not sharing the truth of the Catholic faith, I'm going to be held accountable as is any one of us who has a platform and we all have a platform. The sizes and the extent are different, but every single person, especially if you have a computer and if you have a Facebook page or a Twitter account, you have a platform. And so we're all responsible to evangelize and we make be fearful, but we move through that fear with trust that God is with us. He tells us he will give us the words. Catholic Connections, Teresa Tomio. Weekdays, 9 a.m. Eastern on EWTN Radio.
3: Hello, Steve Ray here. Everything in the Bible and in the Catholic Church starts with a book of Genesis. It reveals to us God's plan for mankind. Yet Genesis can be daunting, especially given the scientific discoveries of the last few centuries. Well, that's where I come in with my new book, Genesis, a Bible study guide and commentary discover a thoroughly Catholic approach to this exciting and dramatic ancient narrative that is so often misunderstood. You can get the book now on the store page at AveMariaRadio.net. Check it out.
2: Good afternoon, I'm Al Cresta. Let me say, uh, we have some congratulations really in order here, going out to a longtime member of the EWTN radio family. It's Sacred Heart Radio of the Northwest, celebrating 23 years with us. They're now on 12 AM and FM stations covering Washington State and Kodiak, Alaska. Have to say, great congratulations to Ron Belter, uh, one of the pioneers of Catholic radio and his great team at Sacred Heart. Uh, listen, from all your friends here at EWTN, Ron, uh, spread it with your, your team there, huh? I'm Al Cresta. Cresta in the
0: Afternoon is a co-production of Ave Maria Radio and EWTN Radio and carried across the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network.
1: from the studios of Ave Maria Radio in Ann Arbor, Michigan, Al Cresta is ready for Conversations of Consequence. This is Cresta in the Afternoon.
2: And a good afternoon to you. I'm Al Cresta, and let me say, we are going to be spending this hour looking over some of the big stories of 2023. Uh, for instance, uh, how about the Saints? Uh, for the just the second year since his papacy began, Pope Francis did not canonize any new saints in 2023, but there's still plenty of names to look at. Uh, he recognized several new blessings. He announced plans for another canonization earlier this year. And then uh, we have U.S. bishops advancing the cause of Isaac Hecker, who I, I'm excited about, and also supporting plans to name St. John Henry Newman a doctor of the Church, another one I'm excited about. Michael O'Neill. Will be joining us. Um, yeah, he's the creator of They Might Be Saints. Uh, in the second segment of today's program or this hour's program, Gordon Govier will be joining us. He's editor of Biblical Archaeology Magazine, Artifacts, and he'll go over the top ten discoveries in the field of biblical archaeology for last year. And uh, there's some fascinating stories there. And then we'll have uh, our friend Michael New joining us, Senior Associate Scholar at the Charlotte Luzer Institute. 2023 on the pro-life front, important victories, uh, some serious defeats. Uh, We're going to—most notable was probably the passage of Proposal 1 in Ohio, which was yet another example of voters choosing to support abortion after the Dobbs decision. We'll review this and other stories with Michael uh, but first, let's get today's headlines. Thanks, Al. Good afternoon,
0: everyone. This is your Robbie Maria Radio News. For Tuesday, January 16th, it's the Feast of St. Joseph Oz. Today's news brought to you by Visiting Angels, providing loving care and assistance for seniors in need at visitingangels.com. It's another day of record-setting cold and dangerous wind chills across the central U.S., More than 140 million people are under wind chill advisories or warnings. The National Weather Service says after a brief reprieve from the cold, another Arctic air blast is expected later this week. The Republican presidential candidates are now turning their attention to New Hampshire. Former South Carolina Governor Nikki Haley was the first to arrive in the Granite State following Monday's Iowa caucus. She came in third there behind former President Trump and Florida Governor Ron DeSantis. Iran fired missiles at what it says were Israeli spy headquarters in northern Iraq.
4: A fireball could be seen for miles. It exploded in a very wealthy neighborhood of Erbil, not far from the U.S. consulate.
0: In Jerusalem, NBC News international correspondent Richard Engels says many people thought the U.S. consulate was the target of that attack. The target for Iran was a wealthy Kurdish businessman's private compound who owns a Kurdistan logistics company. Iran thought the company was helping the Israeli intelligence service. The Supreme Court is declining to hear a case about an Indiana high school's transgender bathroom policies. A lower court ruling students are allowed to use restrooms according to their gender identity. The Indiana school district has appealed. Congress is announcing a bipartisan deal to expand the child tax credit and create a series of tax breaks for businesses. It will enhance refundable child tax credits to try to provide relief to struggling families and those with multiple children. It will also raise the tax credit's refundable cap and adjust it for inflation. From your Alvin Maria Radio.net News Desk, I'm Steve Clark.
2: Good afternoon, I'm Al Cresta. We are taking a look at some of the big stories of 2023, and let's talk about the saints. Well, for just the second year since his papacy began, Pope Francis did not canonize any new saints, but uh, that doesn't mean there wasn't uh, a lot to talk about. Uh, He recognized several new blessings, and he did announce plans for another canonization early this year. The U.S. bishops uh, have advanced the cause of Isaac Hecker, who was the founder of the Paulist Fathers, and uh, supporting plans to name St. John Henry Newman a doctor of the Church. Michael O'Neill, though, is the guy to talk to because uh, he is creator of the documentary series They Might Be Saints, and also the radio program The Miracle Hunter and the popular website MiracleHunter.com. He's recognized as an expert on Marian apparitions, has appeared on NBC, The Dr. Oz Show, and faith-based media platforms worldwide. And is the author of several books, including They Might Be Saints. Michael, good to have you again. Thanks.
5: Hey, it's great to be back on.
2: Let's go over some of these. Uh, while Pope Francis didn't canonize anyone in 2023, he definitely uh, hasn't been uh, uh, you know, uh, laying down on the job. He's been taking a look at some new blessings. Tell me what we can learn.
5: Well I think that uh one of the things that uh many people don't know is that uh coming out of Rome in the dicastery for the causes of saints every few months or so they release they they release a decree and we're talking about uh the this, the venerables blessed and saints and so they might release decrees of miracles they might for the blessed and saints they'll do release decrees of heroic virtue so uh there was a good number you mentioned there were no saints but uh there were blessed and uh, some martyrs. Uh, there were uh, six martyrs declared uh, people who died in odium Fidei out of the hatred of the faith, uh, mm-hmm. priests, religious, and a seminarian. Uh, so every few months we've seen, we've seen the, the sainthood causes moving along for an, a number of people from all around the world. Uh, I
2: understand that he's planning to preside over the canonization mass of Argentina's first female saint. Can you tell us a little bit about her?
5: Yes, I think uh, this reminds me a little bit of when the—I'm uh, I, I, quite sure that uh, that Blessed Maria Antonio of St. Joseph is worthy of being a saint, but I think it's a very special thing uh, for a pope from Argentina to preside yeah. over the Mass for Argentina's first female saint. It reminds me a little bit of— in the all-star games where the in baseball where the the managers uh from from their uh from their uh team they may get to to manage their own players uh in in the all-star game yeah. so sort of, but it's sort of a, a fun thing uh for Pope Francis very as good well.
0: but, yeah
5: um but she uh was proclaimed venerable by Pope Benedict in 2010 and later beatified by Pope Francis in 2016 and uh in meeting with uh Cardinal Marcelo Samararo the prefect for the dicastery for the causes of saints they uh they found a miracle that paved the way for her to become the first female saint, and she's from uh, from Santiago del Estero, which is the northern part of Argentina. I've been to Argentina several times myself, and uh, it's a big country. But uh, going through the north, you can you can uh, stop by that place, and um, and so she uh, she died in 1799 in Buenos Aires. Um, but uh, this is uh, this is a big deal uh, to have the first female saint coming out of Argentina.
2: Yeah. And what uh, do we have the date on that?
5: I don't know if it's been established quite yet. Okay. Uh, I don't I don't uh, have any notes on that, but uh we'll we'll be hearing that uh, the dicastery will in fact uh, or I I see let's see we have uh on February 2nd the holy father will preside over the mass for the feast of the presentation in St Peter's Basilica uh candle mass. And so uh we'll we'll see Uh, if there is any announcement uh, in those days around there uh, of this this, uh, canonization.
2: Very good. You mentioned uh, the the six martyrs uh, that he approved. Uh, Can you tell me a little bit about them?
5: So uh, Luigi Carrara and Giovanni Guidone, uh, Italian, of course, they were professed. Priest of the uh, Pious Society of St. Francis Xavier, uh, the Zaverians, um, and they were together with uh, Vittorio Facin, a professed religious of the same society, and a priest named Albert Jobert, and they were killed on November 28th in the year 1964 in Baraka and Fizi, mm. and these uh, locations are in the Democratic Republic of the Congo, which would be a dangerous place, especially in those years uh, for uh, Catholic priests to be. And so um, there, was, uh, there was civil unrest in that place. And, of course, there always needs to be the differentiation uh, between somebody who's killed uh, due to political reasons or out of odium Fidei, out of hatred of the faith. Yeah. Uh, but it was because they were missionaries that they were killed in cold blood uh, when they came to the door uh, that fateful day. So, um, so these, these are some of the ones. And then uh, three years later, uh, the cause of uh, Slovakian seminarian Jan Havlik, was a member of the missionaries of Saint Vincent uh, uh, de Paul. He was also killed as well. So, um, so we, we're seeing a number of these uh, people from all around the world uh, in Africa and otherwise who are, are being recognized now as and, uh, blessed.
2: Yeah, and there, many of them are recent, re- relatively recent. I mean, uh, yes,
5: to... absolutely. I think when I was I was looking through the list. Of people being canonized, they're beatified and named in venerable this year, and there were only a couple that were not from the 1900s. So yeah. I think it's these are all very uh, recent people, which is uh, inspiring for all of us in this yes. modern day. Yeah,
2: absolutely. Um, the U.S. Conference of Catholic Bishops uh, have been uh, trying to advance the canonization cause of Isaac Hecker, and uh, again, he's again a remarkable 19th century American priest. Tell us a little bit about him and uh, the cause for his canonization.
5: Sure. So Isaac Hecker, he lived 1819 to 1888, uh, primarily in New York City, Um, and he was the founder of the Paulist Fathers, uh, the religious society that many people uh, perhaps are uh, familiar with, and he was ordained as a redemptorist priest in the 1940s and uh, he went on to found this uh, Missionary Society. I think it was called Missionary Society of St. Paul the Apostle. Now it's called the Paulist Fathers. And uh, so he one one of the things that I really liked is he set out to evangelize both believers and non-believers uh, in, in America to convert to Catholicism. I, I love the idea of converting believers to Catholicism as well, because we all know we need a little bit of a boost. So I think that's, that's great that he had that focus as well. Yeah. And uh, he, he actually... Uh, pushed forward and published a publication called the Catholic world in uh, 1865. So, um, you know, he was, he was a man of, of many talents and his cause opened uh, some time ago in 2008. Uh, but uh, this is, uh, he's now a servant of God. And of course, uh, the USCCB approved his cause to move forward. Usually they get the input from all the bishops to make sure that there's not a problem with uh, supporting that cause. And it was, it, he, he was, not unanimously approved, but very close, and so his cause is moving forward. And so uh, in some time they'll have the diocesan phase opening, and then they'll have the, uh, the Roman phase after that, but uh, they're, of course, looking for miracles uh, through his intercession as part of that sainthood cause.
2: Okay, very good. Uh, now, the U.S. bishops are also um, supporting a request for the Holy Father to name St. John Henry Newman a doctor of the Church. Uh, Are the U.S. um, bishops—who else, I guess, what other, uh, you know, national bishop conferences are uh, committed to this?
5: Well, from what I understand, of course, it's coming out of England. And uh, the way that it works is that a letter is sent to Pope Francis from the the National Bishops' Conference of the place where the person lived and died, and in this case of John Henry Newman— we have uh, the English bishops conference. So uh, they always like to show the, uh, the devotion uh, related to uh, a, f- a future doctor of the church or, or current saint when they approach uh, the Pope with this request. And uh, of course we have the, the miracle uh, that was used for his canonization came out of the United States. Uh, so that was, uh, uh, that was uh, uh, Melissa Villalobos, who I interviewed on my radio show. Um, uh, some time ago, and she had that miracle of, uh, uh, related to childbirth, and that she had a great devotion to uh, to John Henry Newman, and that propelled him forward. And his previous miracle was from the United States as well. So I think it makes a lot of sense to, to have uh, the U.S. bishops behind it. What the entirety of the bishops' conferences around the world who have signed up to, to support, I don't know that answer, but being an English-speaking uh, speaker, I think that uh, and with this American uh, connection, I think uh, having the American bishops in that letter or supporting that letter will be important, and we'll see if Pope Francis goes ahead with it. He's already named two doctors of the Church, St. Irenaeus in 2022, and also St. Gregory Narek of Narek, uh in 2015 were the two other doctors of the Church, so it's possible that we see a third.
2: Yeah, and, and St. John Henry Newman has had extraordinary influence on Catholic thought. Uh, in nineteenth through the 20th century, and he's still uh, uh, very much uh, someone to be reckoned with uh, in the field of uh, theology so uh, looking forward to that I, I he played an important role in my return to the Catholic Church so i i'd love to see him named doctor of the church uh, who I don't know anything about Antonio Gaudi who is reputed to be God's architect and <laughs> moving down the path of sainthood. Tell me about him.
5: Well I think this is kind of a fun one to talk about. We're talking about antonio Gaudi, uh of course the architect of La Sagrada Familia Basilica in Barcelona. He's this Catalan art- architect and known as God's architect, as you mentioned. And I think uh you know for those people out there who are artists and uh, architects, they probably find this to be an interesting thing to, to get beyond the priests and nuns, perhaps, who almost always get recognized saints, to see somebody in a different background, to see their lives dedicated to God in a different way, uplifting uh, their lives to God in the form of structures headed towards Heaven. So I think it's kind of a uh, a fun thing for people to see. And the, the interesting thing about his cause, which uh, has been in the diocesan phase where they collect all the interviews and sort of catalog his virtues. Uh, that's moving ahead. Uh, in, they're in the final process of that. Uh, they're trying to get him to move from servant of God to, to venerable. And so the Archdiocese of Barcelona has submitted this position page, paper called uh, "Positio." It's the "Positio super vita virtutibus et fama sanctitatis." That's the position paper on life, virtue, and reputation of holiness. So that's that's his whole. Uh, that's his whole CV, you might say, uh, relating to his uh, his major virtues of faith, hope, and charity, and all the testimonies yes. go right in there. So that has been submitted to the Dicastery for the Causes of Saints, So, uh, and that was as of December 4th. So this is very recent. So uh, they oftentimes take some years there uh, to review it, and then if uh, by unanimous judgment they say, yes, he has lived a life of heroic virtue, he will be declared venerable. And then, of course, when the miracles come pouring in, or they present the miracles to the same dicastery, then he moves from blessed, and subsequently a new miracle will get him to be saint. So he's in the very early stages, but it seems like they've wrapped up uh, that position paper, and it's uh, in the hands of the dicastery now.
2: Very good. Do we see more and more uh, laymen and women uh, being considered? Uh we do. I
5: think that's an important thing for, for all of us uh, laymen and yeah. uh, women out there. Uh, who We see the priests and nuns, and we all have different, we're called to different uh, different vocations in our lives. Sure. But we all want to be saints, or we should be wanting to be saints, I suppose, and uh, when we see people like Antoni Gaudi and others, uh, we see the numbers going up, so it's inspiration for all of us.
2: Very good. Well, Michael, thank you so much. Great talking with you again. How do people stay in touch with your work?
5: People can find me on MiracleHunter.com or Instagram or Facebook.
2: All right. We'll talk again. Thanks. Thank you. Michael O'Neill, again, uh, he has a documentary series, They Might Be Saints. He has the radio program, Miracle Hunter. He's got the website,
7: MiracleHunter.com. Follow him up. 60 on 10 with Monsignor Charles Pope.
11: The first commandment. I am the Lord your God. You
2: shall have no strange gods before me. In this commandment, God seeks to protect us from false claims to our worship and obedience. And there are there's a great
11: sad history of people who have trusted in gods other than him or things other than him and the ruin that it has caused. So God is trying to protect us and call us to an absolute trust and obedience of him. He asks us to trust him above all things and above all other people or so-called gods. We have to also avoid things like consulting horoscopes, palm reading, clairvoyance, recourse to mediums, any desire to try to control things apart from God, God simply says, trust me, I'm the Lord your God. The first commandment, I am the Lord your God, you shall have no strange gods
5: before me.
7: For more about the Ten Commandments, visit EWTNRC.com.
5: It's time for Family Man
11: with Dr. Gregory Popchuk. We, We Catholics have lots of ways to pray novenas, litanies, meditations, you name it, we've got it. With so many ways to pray, there's sure to be a way that fits your family. No matter how you pray, though, it's important to remember why we pray. As the Catechism of the Catholic Church says, prayer is, quote, a vital and personal relationship with the living and true God, close quote. When we sit down to pray as a family, we're not just checking off another chore on our to-do list. We're helping one another deepen our relationship with God and each other, if you're not sure where to begin, try this. Before meals and family gatherings, say, let's remember to take a moment to be in God's presence, and then take even 30 seconds to praise God, to thank Him, and to ask for His grace and blessing for your family. For more ideas about praying with your family, visit CatholicHOM.com. I'm Dr. Greg Popcheck, but you can call me Found. To discover more ways faith can enrich your life, visit CatholicCounselors.com.
7: E-W-T-N helping people grow in their love and understanding of God. Okay, I've been a Catholic for five
4: years, but I suffered under a lot of things due to my Protestantism as a Pentecostal, and I just want to personally ask God to bless you for your ministry, for everything you do, and the help that you give people.
9: Cresta in the Afternoon is underwritten by the following nonprofit organization. Real Estate for Life. Buying or selling your home or business property? Real Estate for Life can connect you with one of 1,400 pro-life real estate agents around the world. When Real Estate for Life receives a referral fee, they donate 70% to Ave Maria Radio and Human Life International. More information at realestateforlife.org or 877-LIFE-US1. That's realestateforlife.org.
2: Good afternoon, I'm Al Cresta, looking over the top stories of 2023, and joining me right now is Gordon Govier. He is the uh, biblical archaeologist who writes for Christianity Today, he hosts the radio program The Book and the Spade, he edits the biblical archaeology news magazine, Artifacts, and uh, he's, uh, again, written a wonderful article for Christianity Today called Biblical Archaeology's Top Ten Discoveries of 2023. Gordon, good to have you back here. Thanks.
13: Yeah, well, it's great to talk to you again. I just want to clarify, I'm,
2: I'm sorry, we had a difficulty hearing you on that. Yeah, yeah, we're going to have to get a different line there. So, <laughs> what's that? I'm not sure. Every once in a while, you hear new sounds. I don't think I've ever quite heard that sound before. After yeah. well, there were all these years of doing radio. That was a new one on me, but uh, the major uh, biblical archaeology stories of twenty twenty three are fascinating. Um, they they have there's lots of doom and destruction, and there's some disappointment too. Um, but uh, these stories, again, you have to understand a lot of time with archaeology, uh, they're tantalizing discoveries that take years to confirm or to deny and so there's going to be some of those stories in this list as well there's been the discovery of ancient israelite dna for instance and uh gordon you with me again
13: yes i'm here very good about the feedback
2: yeah you were correcting me though go ahead
13: Yeah, well, I'm not an archaeologist, I'm just a journalist, but my focus is on biblical archaeology, and I've been doing a radio program about biblical archaeology for 40 years. Right, right. got a little bit of a background.
2: Very good. And uh, let's talk about these uh, stories of 2023. Uh, Why don't you count them down for me?
13: Well, um, it was an interesting year for biblical archaeology, and um, I actually had a tough decision as to what was going to be the number one choice for the year, and I ended up with like four different number one possibilities. <laughs> um, there was my original number one, and then there was a late-breaking discovery that bumped that to number two, and then there was another discovery that was, was really a pretty big deal, but it wasn't really biblical archaeology, but that was in Israel. And then there's, since the list was published, there's been one more discovery that might have been the top number one on the list, too. So uh, it was (laughs) quite an interesting year. Wow.
2: Well, uh, why why don't you start at the top? (laughs) We'll we'll move down.
13: Yeah, well, what ended up being number one is this um, announcement of a moat for Jerusalem, which totally changes our picture of Jerusalem. If if you've been to Jerusalem and yes. uh, stood on the Mount of Olives and looked out at the city, you I see uh, yeah. the Temple Mount area, and that's um, now occupied by the Dome of the Rock. But in biblical times, there was a temple there uh, built by Herod, and before that, the one built by Solomon. And then, sloping down to where the the Hinnom Valley and the Kidron Valley come together, is the the City of David, the oldest part of Jerusalem, and and there there is just that kind of sloped down the hill, and that was where people lived. And now, with this moat, you have uh, the lower city where the ordinary people live, and that's separated into and then a, an Acropolis where the palaces of the king probably were located, as well as the temple. And uh, it just changes our picture of what Jerusalem looked like in the Iron Age.
2: How, how large is this moat?
13: Um, I don't think it's very large. they just uncovered one end of it, and it's about um, let's see, 20 feet deep, 100 feet wide, and so that's pretty large. Yeah. But um, they were, they were all the way down to bedrock, and then they noticed you know the way that it was kind of carved out of the bedrock. It was there for a specific purpose. It just wasn't kind of a ditch. And it had had been uncovered by an earlier excavation um, by Kathleen Kenyon back in the fifties, I think, but it would it was just noticed then as kind of a depression, and they didn't realize that that maybe it really was a moat
2: so what 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 purpose do we do we have an idea what this what purpose this moat would have served?
13: Well, it probably was a defensive moat, like um, most moats around castles. And the challenge right now is to date it. They really have no idea um, when it was created. And they're talking about maybe in the time of David and Solomon or a little bit after that. That's that's the the dating that they have right now but it could have been um, done by the Jebusites earlier before David even conquered Jerusalem and made it his capital. And it's possible at that point it might have been, the city of Jerusalem might have been smaller and and the moat would have been created to defend the northern part of the city and keep um, invaders from coming down that area. And then when David built the temple, or uh, Solomon built a temple, and David built a palace. Then you had kind of a separation between the lower city and the upper city.
2: All right. Well, let's let's go to number two. What, what do you have there?
13: Yeah, my original number one was is now number two. It was demoted. Um, this is a, an excavation that's going on. been going on several years now to try to find the city of Bethsaida on the northern shore of the Sea of Galilee, and there's actually been kind of a controversy um, over whether or not it is at a site called El araj which is right on the northern shore, or another site called Atel, which is about a mile off of the shore of the Sea of Galilee. And in the last year or two, they have been uncovering uh, basilica that was built in the Byzantine era and um last year they had they discovered a mosaic that um called it uh, um the it, it was referring to the chief and commander of the heavenly apostles which is how Peter is typically referred to mm-hmm. so they felt that this may have been the church of the apostles which is known from history that was built over the house of the Apostles Peter and Andrew, wow. who, um, in, in the Gospel of John, it says they were from Bethsaida. So this fall, uh, digging under the apse of this basilica, they found the remains of a first century wall, and another wall that was almost that old, and which they believe um, was... At least believed to be by the people who built the church, the the home of uh, Peter and Andrew. Wow. Um, what's interesting about this is that um, the Gospel of Mark puts Peter in Capernaum. So um, now we have two different homes of of Peter to to visit.
2: Hmm. That's interesting. Do those need to be reconciled?
13: Well, you know, I think. Bible scholars love to debate, and uh, this is going to be an ongoing debate now. I mean, they have debating over which is the best Bethsaida, and now they've got, you know, which is the best home of St. Peter.
2: <laughs> Very good, good. Uh, you have a, a mysterious uh, entry here about a mud-brick arch at yeah, Tel-Shimron. So tell biblical us about
13: archaeology is, is full of mysteries, and uh, this is one that uh, has been kind of unfolding in the f- past couple of years at an excavation at a site called Tel-Shimron, which is overlooking the uh, Jezreel Valley from the north. There's a very, very famous site in Megiddo on the south, and Shimron is kind of a corresponding site on the north part north side of the Jezreel Valley that really hasn't been excavated until the last few years and this year they announced that they had one of the areas where they had been working was showing up as a mud brick arch which um they have no idea where it leads to because they haven't been able to get to the end of it yet it kind of disappears into the tell uh, the tell is, uh, you know, the, the remains of the city built up layer by layer over the years, and the uh, one of the reasons that it's in such good shape is that they believe it was buried shortly after it was created, back during uh, the Canaanite era, about um, four thousand years ago.
4: Hmm. Wow. So
13: um, that's a, a ongoing excavation, and hopefully, we'll have more information in the years to come.
2: And uh, you you mentioned that there's been some discovery that elevates the stature of David and Solomon again.
13: Yeah, so um, there were a number of articles over the last year. In fact, um, one of the articles I did for Christianity Today uh, last year just happened to pop up in the middle of several others. And um, it basically was denoting the fact that um, David and Solomon are kind of back in the good graces of uh, biblical archaeologists and biblical scholars, because over the last several decades, there's been uh, a number of minimalists who have dismissed David and Solomon and said there really wasn't much archaeological evidence to show that they were the kind of kings that the Bible talks about. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And since um, that became a trend, there's been sort of a core a pushback from archaeologists saying, well, what about this and what about that? And that's what these articles were about over the last year or so. And so David and Solomon are, are, are back in good graces.
2: And what's been found to indicate that?
13: Well, one of the major articles was by uh, Hebrew University archaeologist Yosef Garfinkel, who um, reviewed five different sites that were located around Jerusalem. And he basically connected them and said, you know, if if Jerusalem wasn't the kind of a uh, powerful city that the Bible talks about, that these sites wouldn't really be connected, but, but they are connected just by the archaeological evidence that's been found. They have similar fortifications, a lot of urban features that that match the biblical description of a centralized kingdom, and it all comes out at the same time period, about 3,000 years ago, when David, according to the Bible, was the king in Jerusalem.
2: Uh, so the, these cities uh... They're they're not out there nowhere they're they're actually linked together, as uh, stre- strengthening the idea of a centralized uh, city, strengthening the idea of what Jerusalem.
13: Yeah, yeah. Um, so one of the sites that Garfinkel actually excavated uh, was called uh, Kerbet Kaffa and it was located uh, away from Jerusalem, actually kind of on the border between the, the Israelites and the Philistines. And um, they found a, a casemate wall with large stones and, and a huge building right in the center of the city. And it, it was the kind of a site that just would not have been created unless there was a powerful government somewhere that gotcha. was saying we need to build up these fortifications.
2: Gordon, thank you again. Good talking with you. And uh, maybe we'll get you back well. to finish the list in the next few weeks. Thank you.
13: Okay, that will be great. Thank you.
0: This program brought to you in part by the following nonprofit, Christendom
2: College. Looking for a life-changing experience this summer that will strengthen your child's faith and immerse them in a joyful Catholic culture? Well, send them to Christendom College's high school summer program, The Best Week Ever. It's located in the beautiful Shenandoah Valley of Virginia, and The Best Week Ever is one of those gifts that keeps on giving. You can learn more and apply at bestweekever.com. Mention Al Cresto when applying. That's bestweekever.com.
3: Back by popular demand is our trip through Portugal, Spain, and France. We start with a day in Fatima, following all the steps of the Little Shepherds. Santiago de Compostela, the ending point for the El Camino, is the home of the largest incensor. Visit the tomb of St. James the Apostle. Three days in Lourdes, which is quite indescribable. You'll have to come and see it to believe it. To learn
0: more about your Ave Maria Radio trip, find the Ave Maria Radio Travel tab at AveMariaRadio.net.
8: Accidents are the leading cause of life-threatening injuries, but few Americans are prepared. My Life Angels creates your pro-life healthcare durable power of attorney, accessible anytime on smartphones, and alerts loved ones if you enter a hospital ER, empowering them to protect you. You can protect yourself and your family. Use code Ave at checkout today, and My Life Angels will donate 35% of your initial membership to Ave Maria Radio.
11: That's 844 398
9: 9399.
7: What makes an act moral or immoral? The Catechism of the Catholic Church lays out specific criteria for us to follow. When he acts deliberately, man is, so to speak, the father of his acts. Acts freely chosen can be morally evaluated as either good or evil. The sources on which the morality of an act are determined are three 1. The object chosen. 2 the intent of the act, three, the circumstances surrounding the act. To be moral, the object of the act itself must be good and the intention pure. The circumstances are secondary to the first two criteria. They can increase or diminish the morality of the act. For instance, stealing a candy bar is wrong, but far less evil than robbing a bank. Intent and circumstance, however, cannot change the moral quality of the act itself. The end does not justify the means. This is Peggy Stanton, and this has been the Order of Malta's Minute with the Catechism.
10: Dr. Ray Garendi.
7: What's looking back at you at age 22?
10: What do you hope to say about that child at age 22? If you're content to say, well, the way kids are turning out nowadays, counting my blessings. parole officer says one of the nicest children he has. Or would you rather say, he's one in a hundred, morals, compassion, seeks God. Are you prepared to be a one in a hundred parent then? You can't parent like the bulk of parents anymore. You will supervise far higher. You will screen out toxic media sewage at a rate unlike all of your friends, perhaps your family. No guarantees as to what will be looking back at you at age 22. But you want to be able to say, I think he's one in a hundred, then you be a one in a hundred parent.
2: afternoon. I'm Al Cresta, and 2023 saw some important victories and defeats for the pro-life movement. Uh, Joining me now to talk about last year in review for the abortion issue, we've got Dr. Michael New. He's Assistant Professor of Practice at the Bush School of Business at the Catholic University of America. He's also a Senior Associate Scholar at the Charlotte Lozare Institute and a Paige Comstock Cunningham Fellow at Americans United for Life. Michael, good to have you back here. Thank you. Al, thanks for having me. Much appreciated. Let's take a look at the last year. Uh, How would you characterize it? Give us some of the the ups and some of the downs.
6: Well, post jobs, I always say pro-lifers face both opportunities and challenges. And there was quite a lot of both in 2023. Uh, We made some good progress passing some strong pro-life laws at the state level. Uh, A law took effect in North Dakota that protected all pre-born children. Uh, South Carolina passed a law that protected the preborn children after six weeks gestation, and both North Carolina and Nebraska uh, laws took effect that to protected the, protect the preborn after 12 weeks gestation. So we made some good progress at the state level. Uh, there was some good litigation that was filed by our good friends, Alliance Defending Freedom. They succeeded in reinstating to protections on the distribution of chemical abortion drugs. So the Biden administration, FDA, is trying to make these laws, these regulations, more permissive uh, because of litigation. Some pro-life protections have been brought back in. So those are good things. On the other hand, uh, there were some setbacks uh we did suffer a defeat at the ballot box in ohio uh ohio there was a ballot proposition uh to put legal abortion in the state constitution uh pro lifers did raise money you know, we were organized uh the catholic dioceses were involved uh we didn't get the outcome we wanted uh the other side got about 56 57% uh so legal abortion uh is in the constitution in Ohio, mm-hmm. and there's going to be other ballot propositions uh, coming up in 2024. So some good things happened on sanctity of life issues, uh, but some setbacks as well. But as I always remind people, we were never promised a, a smooth glide path to victory. Uh, there'll be setbacks, disappointments, aggravations along the way. We just have to be faithful and keep doing our work.
2: Yeah, um, I certainly agree. Yeah. Uh, Do we know if the strategy that the uh, pro-abortion forces took in Ohio will be, is that a template for them, for other states? Uh, Well, it's kind of interesting.
6: They are going to be putting uh, abortion on the ballot in other states. Uh, You might see it on the ballot in as many as 12 states. You could see ballot propositions in Arizona, Arkansas, Colorado, Florida, Maryland, Missouri, Nebraska, Nevada, New York, South Dakota, Pennsylvania, and Iowa. So it does seem like this is a template they're going to use elsewhere. That said, it's not really clear uh, it's going to be as successful um, in these other states as it was in, say, Michigan and Ohio. Uh, That's for a couple reasons. Uh, First off, in some states, it's hard to amend the Constitution. In Florida, you need 60 percent of the vote to amend the Constitution, not a majority. Sixty percent, and in places where prolifers have run strong campaigns—Kansas, Michigan, Ohio—we've kept the opposition under sixty. So that's one thing. They're also trying to run ballot propositions in some very conservative states: Missouri, South Dakota, Arkansas, Nebraska. These are all states that Donald Trump carried by more than fifteen percentage points in 2020, and you already see some infighting. That in Missouri. In Arkansas, South Dakota, uh, there's some questions: Do they want to, you know, legalize abortion in all cases, or do they just want to pass a proposition that would legalize only to a certain gestational age limit? So the other side's having some infighting in conservative states uh, that could work to our advantage. So again, it's an important year for pro-lifers. There are some winnable elections uh, We need to be prayerful, need to be diligent. Uh, Again, I think that's obviously these ballot propositions are going to be very important in 2024.
2: You mentioned infighting among the pro-abortion forces. Are you seeing any, um, uh, you know, infighting among uh, uh, pro-lifers post-Dobbs?
6: I mean, you know, here and there, there's some differences in strategy. uh, But right now, uh, you know the other side, I think, is really on the offensive, yeah. and when the other side's on the offensive, it's pretty you know, easy to just go ahead and agree, we need to stop this. Right. You know that if uh, you know one thing we have to be aware of in two thousand and twenty four is that for the first time, these bow propositions are going to jeopardize pro-life laws that are currently in effect. Again, Missouri, South Dakota, Arkansas, Nebraska. These are all states that have very strong pro-life laws currently in effect that could be jeopardized. By these pro-abortion ballot propositions. So if you have a strong pro-life law in place, and the other side is trying to undermine it, getting pro-life people to oppose, the, you know, these propositions, that's going to be pretty easy. So there's always disagreement, uh, but I think in these conservative states, you see a lot more infighting amongst people who support legal abortion. Yeah.
2: Okay. Uh, there are people who, you know, notice that uh, the pro-life movement has sometimes, you know, worked incrementally uh, to put laws in place to redu- reduce death. Is there any any studies that have been done that would indicate that pro-life laws are actually saving lives? Yep, there's actually
6: a lot of good research on this. That you know, Dobbs uh, was handed down um, a year and a half ago, and many states were very quick to go ahead and enact pro-life laws, strong pro-life laws in the aftermath. And one thing we do see is that we have access to birth data from these states. Uh, one thing I'm telling pro-life audiences is that abortions are hard to count. Uh, because, you know, women can go out of state, they can go to other countries, they can obtain chemical abortion posts through the mail. But births are easy to count. You know, the government does do a pretty good job tracking the uh, number of people <laughs> who are born. And, you know, essentially we do see uh, good statistical evidence that in these states that have enacted strong pro-life laws, birth numbers have increased. You know, we actually have seen big increases in Texas. You know, my research shows that, other researchers shows that they had actually a heartbeat law that was actually in effect before Dobbs. Took effect September two thousand twenty one. States like Mississippi, which are actually far away from you know out of state abortion facilities, they saw a big increase in their state birth rate. So again, we see you know more children being born in these pro life states. I think that's very strong, very compelling evidence that these pro life laws you've passed are saving thousands of lives.
2: Hmm, that is good news. Um, uh... I've seen that you've written uh, last month on teen sexual activity declining, uh, according to the CDC. Tell tell us about that. Yeah, that's actually interesting. This gets very little attention.
6: Uh, we've seen a big decline in teen pregnancy rates since, like, the early 90s. Teen pregnancy rates have fallen by like 70%, which is a big, big decline. Uh, and one thing that doesn't really get much attention is you've also seen a corresponding decline in teen sexual activity. You know, that in the late 80s, early 90s, you know, studies show that, you know, uh, when you look at teenagers, uh, high 50s or 60% of teenagers reported at some point being sexually active. Those numbers have fallen to, like, the low 40s. So, you know, you've seen a pretty consistent, durable decline in the percentage of teenagers who do report being sexually active. Um, We're not really quite sure exactly why that is.
2: Yeah, that was my next Uh, question.
6: (laughs) You know, I think there's a lot of things. Um, You know, first, we have made bigger investments in abstinence programs. You know, the effectiveness of these programs is disputed, but it does remain that we are putting a lot more money into absence only education. Um, there may be other things as well. Some have speculated that with social media, teenagers are just a lot more kind of risk averse now than they might have been in the past. And mm-hmm. if they do make a mistake, that, you know, friends know about it pretty quickly because of social media. Okay. I hate to say it, but there's probably an increase in. Pornography use among teenagers, yeah. uh, because of the internet, uh, porn is you know more readily accessible today than it was uh, before the internet. And, you know, that's not a good thing, but it may be playing some causal sure. role here. So, um, you know, there's I think a variety of things at play.
2: I mean, the mainstream media wants to credit uh, increase in contraceptive use for the decline.
6: Right, and there is some evidence that sexually active teenagers are more likely to use contraception. But the thing is, is that you know teenagers, more so than other demographic groups, are probably likely to use contraception either incorrectly or inconsistently. Yeah. So there is probably some truth to that. But it's irrefutable that teen sexual activity is declining. They have both Youth Risk Behavior Survey and National Survey of Family Growth, two studies conducted independently, both show the same thing. Both show consistent. Substantial declines in teen sexual activity since the late 80s and early 1990s.
2: Okay, Uh, I want to go to the FDA approval of over-the-counter contraceptives. Um, Is there any any way of pushing back on that?
6: I think the best thing we can do is elect a pro-life president in 2024, and, uh, hopefully this pro-life president will put pro-life people, uh, appoint pro-life people to run the FDA, and they can push back against this. Um, I'm not aware of any litigation at play. Uh, I think this is just a terrible idea. You know, I think that, uh, putting, you know, contraceptives in the hands of teenagers is going to result in kind of more sexual activity, more sexual risk-taking, and it's going to be counterproductive. Uh, I think that there's a lot of evidence showing that programs to make contraceptives more accessible are either ineffective at best, chiropractic at worst. Uh, I don't know if we can legally push back against this. I think our best bet is to elect a pro-life president who will put a good conservative in charge of the FDA and uh, push back against this.
2: Let me go to what is a delicate matter, and that is, after the pro-life defeats in Michigan and Ohio... um, what is the critique? What should we have done differently? And I know we don't like to, you know, uh, discredit in any way the the efforts of some very good and very smart people, but at the same time, you have to ask yourself, could we have done something differently?
6: That's a very good question. Uh, You know, I'm not a campaign strategist, but just from an interested observer's point of view, I would say the emphasis we placed on parental rights in both Michigan and Ohio probably was not our strongest card to play, in my opinion. Okay. As I've kind of mentioned, teen pregnancy rates have gone down a lot, and I don't think parents today are as concerned about their teen daughters getting pregnant today as maybe parents were in the 70s, 80s, and 90s. Uh, I would have hit the issue of tax funding of abortion. I think that hits closer to home. I think you could make a good argument that uh, if these ballot propositions do pass, and abortion is a constitutional right, state Medicaid programs will be required to pay for elective abortions. Means taxpayer dollars will have to pay for them. You know, I think there's that. You know, we are at a fundraising disadvantage. Uh, Obviously, we just can't wave a magic wand and raise more money. But we just need to be aware that you know more material resources are often needed for these campaigns. Uh, and I think also, just in general, pro-life, we need to talk about more what we're for and not what we're against. You know, we are there to support pregnant women in need. We do have pregnancy help centers that are there. You know, the pro-life movement should be talk, being life-affirming and talk about things that, you know, we're in favor of and not necessarily what we're against. So those are kind of ideas that, you know, I might have.
2: Sure. Uh, we're coming up on the March for Life uh, for 2024. Um, how are we seeing those kind of events? Are they growing? Are they diminishing? How significant are they for the movement overall?
6: Well, there's always an internal debate within prolific circles should we move the March uh, to June to commemorate the Dobbs decision? Uh, I think the March for Life made the right decision. You know, I think that we need some demonstration on or on Roe v. Wade to remember the 60 million unborn children that tragically did lose their, their lives. Mm-hmm. You know, I think, you know, attendance, you know, is diminished a little bit, but it'll still be strong. I mean, it'll still be a very robust march, though people will be very enthusiastic. It's going to be a little bit cold. It might snow. But one thing about the March for Life is intense. is always good. Even in blizzards, yeah. people <laughs> have braved truly god-awful conditions uh, to show up and make their voice heard uh, at the steps of the Supreme Court. So, numbers may be down a little bit. Uh, the March for Life is invested in a kind of a state march program. A lot of people are going to state marches, perhaps, right. instead. But I think you'll see a very robust, lively, enthusiastic turnout uh, this coming Friday for the March for Life.
2: How strong is the movement to uh, t- t- commemorate the Dobbs decision in June?
6: Well, it's interesting. We did have a, you know a rally at the uh, Lincoln Memorial last year. Uh, Students for Life of America did a fine job with a kind of a, a conference that they had and uh, and a, a kind of a gala. I'm pretty sure that Abby Johnson's having her group um, you know, do a conference around uh, the Dobbs University in D.C. So there's lots of events that are taking place to uh, kind of honor
2: the okay. top decision. All right. Michael, once again, always good talking with you. Thanks. You do a great job for us. Ah, thanks for having me. Much appreciated. Dr. Michael New we will have, of course, follow-up information available in the Krista Guest Archives. I'm Al Cresta. We
0: are the pro-life generation, passionate about building the culture of life in our healthcare and in our nation. But not all healthcare options are equally pro-life, and some provide morally objectionable procedures. CMF Curo is different. CMF Curo is a pro-life Catholic healthcare ministry providing a pathway for its members to build the culture of life in their healthcare choices, not destroy it. Learn more about CMF Curo at mycatholichealthcare.com. That's mycatholichealthcare.com.
4: Maybe you've been hearing a lot about the need to make a spiritual communion while participating from home in a live-streamed or broadcast Mass. By asking for spiritual communion, we are acknowledging that the Holy Mass is the perfect, best way to worship God. The priest intercedes perfectly for us with God the Father because he acts in persona Christi. This is the time to see that through the priest's representation of Christ's sacrifice on Calvary, we are never separated from our Lord. Jesus, I embrace you and unite myself wholly to you.
8: The wisdom of Mother Angelica.
3: I want you to have such confidence in the Lord that you'll find such hope and see the beauty of the Lord, the majesty of God. What did our Lord say, huh? If your sins are as scarlet, oh, what? What's going to happen? They shall be made white as snow.
9: EWTN.
13: Live truth. Live Catholic. We are called to defend life from the rally to the march. EWTN Television and Radio brings you live and complete coverage of the most important pro-life event of the year. Join us for the annual March for Life in Washington, D.C.
9: Coverage begins Friday morning, 8 Eastern on EWTN
13: Television and Radio.
2: Thank you for being with me today, and let me issue congratulations once again to Ron Belter and his great team at Sacred Heart Radio. Uh, They've got 12 AM and FM stations covering Washington State and Kodiak, Alaska. They've been at it for 23 years uh, this week, partners with EWTN. Congratulations, guys, and thanks. Today, we went over some of the top stories of 2023. You can follow up on any of them by going to the Cresta Guest Archives, AveMariaRadio.net. Will you find again uh, the biggest science stories of last year? The stories about saints, blessed, and martyrs will have the best stories there. Also, biblical archaeology's top 10 discoveries of 2023 and Michael News' analysis of the last
1: year of the pro life movement. I'll see you tomorrow, Lord willing. Presta in the afternoon is a co production of Ave Maria Radio and EWTN Radio and carried across the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. To follow up on any of the guests or information presented on today's program, visit the Cresta Guest Archive at AveMariaRadio.net. That's A-V-E-M-A-R-I-A Radio.net. To listen to this or any other edition of Cresta in the Afternoon, visit the audio archives at AveMariaRadio.net. Or to order a CD of the program, call 734-930-4506 or email orders at AveMariaRadio.net. That's 734-930-4506 or orders at AveMariaRadio.net.